evening. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for the invitation to come to Peckway. I'm old enough. I shouldn't tell you how old I am. Uh, <clears throat> but I'm old enough to remember coming to this church and coming in the back door um, and going down to the basement and, and uh, coming upstairs. And uh, now it's all turned around. And it, it was turned around before I moved away. But uh, lots of good memories of being here. I was actually here in January, but I don't think you saw me. I sneaked in, uh, not inside, but I was, I was in uh, Lancaster County for another event uh, with Dante, my second son, and uh, we drove around and parked in the back corner here to take a little walk in the snow to visit the grave of my father's parents. Uh, Stephen and Lydia Glick, who are buried in the cemetery here. In thinking about education, <clears throat> I believe that I am at least partially qualified to speak about children and education. I'm a father of four, so that helps a lot. In fact, I don't know. I kind of think, you know, I, I taught school uh, at Fairhaven. I taught there for, for five years full time. Uh, after I moved to Ontario, I taught part-time for another 19 years. I've been teaching at uh, various educational institutions, uh, music camps, uh, various settings. Calvary Bible School, is, uh, we, our family has been there, I think, eight years. Uh, so I'm, I'm somewhat qualified to speak about this. I don't know. I don't know who your teachers are because we haven't introduced them yet. <clears throat> I feel like maybe I would have been a little bit better teacher if I'd have been a dad first. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I'm really grateful for all of the teachers uh, that have taught me, and, and many of the, some of them were parents, some of them were not. It's not a qualifier. You do not have to be a parent to be a school teacher. But perhaps today we can, at least for the morning uh, time here together, I want to broaden our perspective of education, and, and I, don't, I don't expect to say new things today, things that you don't already know and to some extent understand um, in various ways that come to bear on this topic. But I want us to consider children in our care, in our homes, in our church communities, and the monumental yet delightful privilege that we have to educate and, and this is where the parenting thing comes in, be educated by our children. Because it's a two-way street. And I, my, one of my positions is that the best teachers are the most teachable and that some of the best teachers Many of them, most of them, perhaps, are our children. More on that later. But for now, uh, I'm going to do a little word association game with you. It's not a game. It's just a thing to do. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of a word, another word, just very quickly. Don't, don't overthink this. Just I'm going to say a word, and then you think of another one. Okay, here we go. Uh, I don't know. I thought about you could yell it out loud. But let's, let's not for now. You can just hide it in your heart. Um, all right, so the first word is uh, thunder. Then, then you thought of a word, right? Okay. Um, macaroni? All right. Um, how about, uh, we'll stay on the food theme, spaghetti? Yeah. What about, uh, here's a fun one. What about uh, preparatory service or, or council meeting? Think of maybe communion. Uh, what about um, education? Okay. If someone asks you to, I don't know if this happens in your life, but let's suppose it did. Somebody would ask you to uh, tell me about your education. What do we do? We typically will say something like, uh, well, I I went to Fairhaven, and uh, 
I went to high school there back when it had one, and uh, those were good times. And uh, or we might say something like, perhaps, um, well, I'm I have a I have a grade eight education. I mean, I'm 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 mostly you know self-taught after that. Or or we might say something like, I went to college. Or, or something like that, but, it, but the, the tendency that we have when we're asked about education is to think about what formal training did we receive in an institution. That's the typical place that our mind goes. Now, it's not a bad place, it's not an incorrect place, but I posit this morning that it is a limited place and it is an insufficient place for us to go when we think about education. So if when I said the word education, the word that came to mind first was school. How many of you went there? Okay, I'll be curious where some of the others of you went. If the first word that came to mind is school, that's common, that's typical, that's what I would do. I would think education, school, these things are connected. And indeed they are. When I was growing up, I grew up in uh, Gap. <clears throat> well, Kinzer's was our zip code, but I uh, went to Mine Road. And it was a tradition at Mine Road, and, I, and it may be what's going on tonight here, I'm not exactly sure, but every late August or something. And I must say, just thank you for your graciousness in letting me come in July to talk about back to school things. It, it worked really well in my schedule. You know, Ben is, is a wise man, and he, he calls you like two years ahead and says, can you do this? And you're like, well, yeah, I mean, I've got nothing. And so, uh, and then uh, the time gets a little closer and then you've got like lots of stuff. And so Ben was very gracious in the, the, the uh, administration here in letting me come a bit earlier. And uh, so that's, that's very kind. Anyway, uh, there was a prayer of dedication at the end of each summer. The teachers would stand and the children that were going back to school and, and high school, grade school, kindergarten, maybe a few went to college, I don't remember, um, would stand and we would have a prayer of dedication for these students and teachers who were returning to school. And I enjoyed that tradition very much, mostly because I, I don't know, I think I like to stand in church. I don't know what, what's up with that. Um, <clears throat> but this affects many in the church. It reminds us of the ever-present nature of education and learning. But this tradition can also, in, in kind of, it can also reinforce the idea that education is about school, that that is the primary connection, that that's the main way that one is educated. And so I want to explore this morning and just kind of setting up the day. So we're meeting here this morning. We'll be meeting again tonight. Um, I'm going to read a little description of Abraham before I outline the day for you here. Uh, wedged between the well-known story of Abraham and Sarah, they learned that they would have a son in their old age, and Sarah laughed about it. And the other well-known story of Abraham interceding for the city of Sodom and trying to get the number down. What about 50? What about 40? What about 30? Would you save it for 10? Is a description of Abraham the man. And I'll read three verses from Genesis 18. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Repeating verse 19, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. According to John Dewey, who was one of the founders of modern public education, Education is simply the way that the aims and habits of a group of people are sustained through generations. If you have a culture, if you have a way of being together, and cultures have priorities, they have values, 
They have things that they hold in esteem or, in imp or as important. And this varies from culture to culture. This is obvious just within Lancaster County, let alone within the state of Pennsylvania, the country of the United States, the world, the solar system. We'll stop with that. <clears throat> diversity of culture necessitates diversity of values. Traditions are a part of these values. Think about the broad range of topics that will come to bear on a community that wishes to extend its values to another generation. If we start talking about education that way, the first things that come to your mind as priorities are probably not math and science and literature. They're things like honesty, grit, justice, compassion, simplicity, humility. This is the short end of a long list of things that I believe we would say we really care about that we want to sustain from generation to generation. These are the things that matter. Things that come to bear on who we are as people of faith. Receiving a tradition from our mothers and our fathers and extending that to our children. This includes stories. It includes training by apprenticing, by working alongside. It includes values of work, of work ethic. It includes a perspective on how to rest, on how to not be too busy. We're not quite as good at that one. Education, according to Walter Elwell, is essential to the survival of any social group. A community secures its continued existence only through the transmission of its accumulated knowledge, derived power, and ideological aims to the next generation. So education may be simply defined as the process of teaching and learning, the imparting and acquisition of knowledge and skill. And so without education broadly understood as wider than what happens inside an institution, without Understanding it beyond that, a community like this one is not sustainable. You cannot pass it on to the next generation if we understand education as something that happens primarily in school. So let's look at Hebrew education. I invite you to turn in the scriptures to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'll read the first about nine verses here. Well, I'll skip a few because I'm not going to be done by 11 if I use, do all my notes here. But the Lord gives commandments to fear God and hear Israel, observe to do it. And then verse 4, we have the Shema, the, the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Verse 6, and these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates." a description of the Hebrew understanding of education as a persistent one, an all-enveloping lifestyle, 
education as a way of life. That happens primarily in the home. And by extension, the faith community, the synagogue in their context, or later, at least the later Jewish context, it would have been a synagogue. Education happens in the home. It happens on the road. It happens pretty much all the time, except maybe when you're sleeping. But it happens right before you go to sleep, and it happens right when you get up from sleeping. And so it's just pretty much, if you're awake, it's time to be teaching. And you know what? That, can, that could seem like a bit of a burden. But the truth is, if you are a parent, if you are an adult of influence, if you are an older sibling, you can't not teach. Because teaching has another word. Living. Being alive. If you're awake and you are with somebody else, particularly if you're a person of influence in some way, and it could be a sibling relationship, it could be a neighbor relationship, it could be a church relationship, if you're alive and awake, you are teaching. Surely we understand that even those who cannot speak, even those who are, who are abed with sickness, are teaching us. Elwell continued by writing that there were three agencies responsible for the education of youth in the Old Testament. One was the home, or the family. The other one was the community. We're a little nervous about it takes a village because Hillary Clinton likes that phrase. So, but it kind of does. It takes a village. It takes more than you. And that shouldn't be a, a terrifying thing. That should be a, a comforting thought. Because we value community. We value being with more people. But it takes trust. It requires vulnerability. And it requires interpersonal relationship. And that can be hard. The, the home, the community, and finally the third place was a formal center of learning. This could have been or likely was in later Jewish situations, again, at the synagogue. And so it's important to remember that the process of education described in the scripture is primarily informal. So I'm simply going to make the distinction between this morning's message and tonight's message between informal education and formal education. That's kind of the line. So when I'm talking about informal education, I'm, I'm speaking about education in the family, in the church, in the community, the life, the regular, the lying down, the rising up, the being together, the perhaps the more is caught than taught kind of education. I saw a, a, a sign at a school in Ontario, it said, it, it's a quote. I don't remember who said it. It's probably apocryphal anyway, uh, because a lot of people that we think said things maybe didn't. But it was, uh, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. <clears throat> well, that's good. Um, except you had to use words to tell me that. So maybe there's a limit to that as well. Words are important, but, but the living, the act of, of, of doing, of being together, that's a little bit more what I'm talking about this morning. So not so much about school, actually. More on that tonight. But education of, the great, of great importance happens in the home and church community. And I would I position that, that this education, this informal education, is more significant, more, more, more character-forming. It is more formational. It is not the only formational education. Surely, what goes on in schools is formational. We must tend to our institutions because they shape us. They form us. We start to bend our ideas toward things we learn in institutions of learning. But at the informal level, this is, what, this is, like, this is the core of us. This is, this is who we really are and who we really want our children to be. And so presence with our children matters. Spending time with them. 
Um, it's shocking. There was, a, there was a study done some years ago um, that Roddy Chestnut writes about, about quality time and quantity time. So apparently we're very busy. The culture is a busy culture. And so there has this new, it's not very new, uh, you remember it from long ago, but the idea of, well, I, I don't have a lot of time, so I will spend quality time with my children. That's what I'll do. I'll make sure that, that when I'm with them, like it's like maximal benefit. I don't know what it means. I mean, what is quality time? But children need quantity time. They need extended exposure to their parents. And think about it, especially with fathers. Some researchers set out to find out how much time middle-class fathers spend with their small children. So this is, you know, infants and toddlers. How much is a dad in a middle-class American society spending, how much time is he spending with his young children? And first they asked them, how much time do you spend with your young children? Well, they said, oh, about uh, uh, 15 to 20 minutes a day. As they thought through their day, and it's like 15 to 20 minutes. That's about how much time I spend with my small children. And then they wired these kids with microphones and recorded their day and found out that middle-class fathers have an average of 2.7 encounters daily with their small children, each of these lasting between 10 to 15 seconds. The average time that a middle-class father spends with a small child per day was 37 seconds. Now, you're already doing better than that, holding a child in church. There are things built into our culture that give us more quantity time. These are valuable things. Hold on to them. But it's that exposure, that length of time, where our work as teachers, and again, if we're alive, we're teaching that our work as teachers comes to bear on what we do. Again, when we think of education, we often think of school. And similarly, when we think of education, we often think of children. But this morning, I focus on the teachers. And again, I think I've been clear that for this morning, when I'm talking about informal education, and I say I'm talking about the teachers, I'm talking about pretty much everybody somebody who's alive and interacting with others. You don't need to be married to have an influence on children. You don't have to be older than 21 to be a teacher. Studies suggest that the single most important factor affecting student performance in schools is the quality of the teachers. This makes sense, I suppose. But what about in informal education? What is the quality of, of us? What is my quality as a teacher? Now, I do not come today to place undue burdens on you if you feel like maybe you're not doing a good job. But I do want to stress the importance of viewing yourself in the culture in which you're located as a teacher. Somebody who influences. <coughs> and as we consider the home and church community, the teachers are, we are the teachers. And so there is very much to teach. How can we possibly get it all done? Let alone do it well. Is there any hope to do a good job at this? So I speak today to the community that teaches our children informally, outside of a school context. I encourage you to look at what I call a meta tool. I'll tell you a little bit more about a meta tool. But before that, I'm going to read a story, which I have read often, and my boys probably have it memorized, and some of you have heard it before, and that's just too bad, because I really like this story. 
This is a story told by Tony Campolo in his book, Let Me Tell You a Story, Life Lessons from Unexpected Places. And it's called The Mailman. One Friday, a young professor of English literature at a state university walked into the academic dean's office and announced that he would not be back on Monday to teach. He was quitting. The dean explained that there was no way he could just walk out on his job and his contract. If he quit, he had no future in teaching. He would be blackballed for any job for which he applied at any other school. To all of this, the young professor simply shrugged his shoulders and said, that's okay. His mother called me and told me what he had done. She asked me to go and talk to him. After all, if he did not teach, what else could he do with a PhD in English literature? Conceding to the plea of his mother, I went to see him. He was living in an attic apartment in Trenton, New Jersey. It was one of those with it lofts, decorated with interesting posters and bookcases full of avant-garde books. He told me to sit down in a beanbag chair. The thing was like a giant amoeba, and I felt almost devoured by it. He looked at me and he said, I quit. That's all there is to it. I couldn't stand it anymore. Every time I walked into that classroom, I died a little bit. I understood what he was talking about because I myself was a college teacher at the time. I knew what it was like to walk into a classroom and pour your heart out for truth. Truth wrenched from suffering and pain, gleaned from the sorrow of human existence. And after you cry and bleed for truth, some student in the last row raises a hand and asks, do we have to know this for the final? And a college professor dies a little bit. After a while, I was aware that there was no way to dissuade him from his decision. Well, what are you doing now to make a living? I asked. I'm a mailman, was his answer. A PhD mailman, now that's something, I responded. He laughed and said, there really aren't too many of us out there. Being raised on the Protestant ethic, I then said what you would expect me to say. Well, if you're going to be a mailman, be the best mailman you can possibly be. I'm a lousy mailman, he answered with a laugh. Everybody else in my post office gets the mail delivered by 2.30 in the afternoon, three at the latest. I never get it delivered until about five. I'll continue that story later. But for now, we reference Proverbs 4 and the text that Ben read a few minutes ago. Hear the instruction of a father. Attend to no understanding. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Don't forget it. Do not forsake her. Love her. Love wisdom. And wisdom will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. And for that reason, Get it! And with all thy wisdom, sorry, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Now, among other things that I do, I do some teaching, not very much. Uh, I compose music, not very much, because teaching pays better than composing, so I do some teaching, and I, I do various things in music. I, I'm in publishing and uh, consulting and proofreading and editing and, and arranging and, and various things that I do. But I like to think about myself as a composer, even though that's like a little bit of what I do. Because it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's artsy, it's uh, creative, supposedly. Um, I don't know why we, 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 this is another sermon on identity and, you know, how we think about ourselves, and, and uh, uh, that's enough of that for now, except to say that, that I have studied composition. I have been taught in the ways of music composition, and there are multiple considerations that come to bear on the work that I do in composition. Composers consider things like repetition, like ver ver variation, contrast, transformation. There are variances in texture. There are variances in forms. Uh, there's continua of silence, of sound, of high and low, of loud and of soft, of slow and of fast, of foreground, background, pulsed and unpulsed, sparse, dense, 
simple versus complex, consonant versus dissonant, sudden versus gradual, and there isn't really any way for someone to learn about all the possible contrasts by taking composition lessons. Rather, what was significant for one of my instructors was to train me in how to find these things myself. He was offering me uh, what he would call a meta tool, like a master key that unlocks other aspects of my work. So rather than training me in how to do every little thing, he attempted to train me to teach myself how to do every little thing, how to notice them, how to think about them from a, from a macro scale, from a zoomed out kind of looking in. How to spot these things, how to recognize them, how to use them in ways that I wasn't specifically trained. What is the Christian's meta tool? What is our main thing? The most important thing we need for every year, for every week, for every day, for each hour, for each minute, if we are going to be informal teachers, and we are, unfortunately it's not a choice. You cannot decide to not be a teacher. I suppose a desert island man, you know, if you crashed and you were the only one alive, maybe you didn't have to be a teacher there. That's about it. I, I can't think of another situation. And you probably have to teach yourself anyway, so you would still be a teacher. We understand in scripture there are matters of priority. Some things are more important than other things. They come in a certain order. Sometimes we seek balance in life, right? Well, let's try to balance, um, I don't know, family and church, or let's balance church and work, or let's balance this and that. And there are times for balance, but often in scripture we see order, priority. There is something that we don't try to balance it, but we try to organize it in the right order. For example, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then these things, food, clothing, raiment, will be added unto you. If you seek the second things first, you'll miss the first thing and possibly the second thing too. So there's an order of a way that things should be done. We know the greatest commandment in the law is to love God and, and that uh, we should love our neighbor and all the commandments hang on these. We know that if there's faith, hope, and love, love is more important. Why? Because it persists eternally. We won't need faith after a while. We won't need hope after a while, but love never fails. So I ask the question, is love the meta tool? Is love the most important thing? We know it's the most important commandment in the law. It's greater than faith and hope. And I'm a big fan of love. And I think we should have more love. And I think we should learn how to do it better. But love is not the main thing. We just read in Proverbs that wisdom is the principal thing. It is the primary thing. I ask you this morning, what does it mean to be human? <clears throat> I was in an oil change uh, bay on the way down here. I don't know why I stopped for oil change on trips, but I did. Um, and the, the technicians were chatting as they were preparing. It's one of these 10 minute, you know, you drive in, you just sit in your van. Do you have them around here? You change your own oil, I get it. Um, okay, but anyway, I, I, <laughs> I didn't. I mean, Dad taught me to change my oil in his defense. And I do sometimes just because I know I should, but mostly I don't. Anyway, we were chatting, and the one guy said to the other, did you know that humans are called homo sapiens? No, no, he didn't, he didn't know that. I don't know why that came up. I, I missed, obviously I missed key parts of the conversation that led to that, because that's not usually what you hear people talking about in an oil change bay, but they were. And uh, that was kind of where it went. <clears throat> well, what does it mean to be human? This Homo sapiens is, a bin is called binomial nomenclature. Um, it's a formal system of naming species by giving them two-part two name. And I'm not going to get into great detail, except that Homo means man and sapiens means 
wisdom. To be wise, to know. This name was given by Carl Linnaeus to describe the human species, and he had originally thought he should give humans the name Homo diurnus, which means man of the day, because we're awake in the day and not in the night, but it changed later. that the, he, he decided the dominating feature of humans was wisdom and gave it sapience, Homo sapiens. And his chosen biological name was meant to emphasize man's uniqueness and separation from the animal kingdom. And so we look at our taxonomy and we discover that we, Homo sapiens, are named wise men. That's our name, wise men. But are we really wise? And what is wisdom? Where does it come from and how do we get it? First question is easier, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to think and to act using knowledge, experience, understanding, insight. It's a habit to perform an action with the highest degree of adequacy under any given circumstance. This implies that we possess some knowledge already or we seek knowledge to apply it. This involves an understanding of people, of objects, of events, of situations, of context, of the willingness as well as the ability to apply perception and judgment and action in keeping with our understanding of what is the best course of action. J.I. Packer in Knowing God writes that wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. And my suggestion this morning, it's not just a suggestion, but it's my belief that as teachers, our best resource is to seek after wisdom. If I was to give you a seminar on educating your children at all of the things that come to bear on this task. It would be books and books long. It would be weeks. I mean, I couldn't do it, but if I could. I mean, just think of all of the aspects of being human and all of the things that we consider significant for life from the side of spirituality and the perspective of our interactions with each other, social relationships, to, to hard sciences and math and skills and technical skill and an understanding of business and an understanding of weather and an understanding of, I mean, I, used to, I still believe that the wisest man, the, the, not the, well, I don't know if he was the wisest, but one of the most educated men that I knew growing up was my Uncle Kenny, who was a dairy farmer, because he had to know so many things. He was broadly educated. Now, he knew his limits. There were things he wouldn't do. But a dairy farmer in the 80s, I don't know how it is now. You have robots now, I think, so it's not quite the same. But a dairy farmer in the 80s, I mean, you had to know, you had to know whether you had to know, like, seeds, and, and you had to know about animal husbandry and genetics, and you had to know, you know, about um, uh, seasons. I, I think I mentioned that. And, and then you need to know about business. And, and how to manage a business and, and, and relationships that way. And you have to know about, you know, just basic things like, like uh, how motors work and, and diesels and hydraulics and pneumatics and, and uh, just, just a whole range of things. We must not confuse, again, the institutional learning with a broad education. <clears throat> so what is the source of wisdom? It comes from God. I have more details and scriptures on that, but for now I'm just going to ask you to believe me. But how do we get it? How do we get wisdom? The point of my message this morning is that we should get wisdom because that's the tool that opens up the things that we need. We must never be content with wisdom that we get through formal education. And we should not think the only way to grow in our understanding is by signing up for more courses or, or getting a certification for this thing or applying to college for that thing. When the Proverbs writer says, get wisdom, he doesn't mean go to school. Though that might be part of the way it happens. That's not the primary meaning of that passage. The command comes to us, get wisdom. What does it mean? So I We'll present this morning at least six ways, if I'm fast, of how 
you can get wisdom. First is, you have to want it. You have to want to be wise. Desire it. It's a good thing. Though we are of the wise man species, we are not born with wisdom. We acquire wisdom by seeking it as hidden treasure. So desire wisdom. Second, since wisdom is found in the scriptures, we must apply ourselves in study and meditation to know the word and to do it. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, or making the simple wise, as we would understand. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy that from a child you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. So that you desire it. You seek it in the scriptures. The third thing we should do to get wisdom is to pray. Ask for it. If you want wisdom, James says, ask. God has a whole bunch of it. And he wants to give it liberally. He wants to give it overflowingly. So ask him. Ask him for wisdom. Solomon was not born a wise man. But he asked for it. And we should diligently request it because we do not know when a crisis will come that requires wisdom. And the scriptures are important in this. That was the second point. But they are not, and, and I, I don't know, are you recording this? They are not sufficient to give us all the wisdom we need. And what I mean by that is that we need the Spirit of God. Solomon, for example, the, the ladies came with the baby, and she said, it's my baby. No, it's my baby. And uh, Solomon, he could have picked up his copy of the Scriptures, and he could have poured through it from head to toe, and he might not have really found direction on what to do about two mothers and one baby. But the Spirit of the Lord gave him wisdom. He said, cut it in half. Sure. No. Paul calls this, this wisdom going beyond knowing the word of God. It includes a sensitive, mature judgment. He calls this in Romans 12, verses two, verse 2, a renewing of the mind that can examine and approve the will of God. It's called a spiritual wisdom in Colossians 1.9. We have not ceased to pray for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And of course, the wisdom which follows God's word and the wisdom which discerns the way to act when there is no clear written word are not separate. These things are connected. But it's precisely by saturating our minds and hearts with God's word that we gain spiritual wisdom to guide us in all situations, even ones that are not specifically written out the way we wish sometimes they would be. Fourth instruction, how to get wisdom. Think frequently about when you're going to die. Psalm 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Why is this important? It gives us context that we need for decisions, social decisions, financial decisions, how to use our limited space. If you're going to be a blade of grass that appears for a short time and then vanishes away, how then should we live? I remember finding an internet death clock. Not the death of the internet, but the death of me. And you could type in your birthday and if you smoked or not and um, a few, probably how much you weighed. I don't remember what you all entered it. And then you would click calculate. And this, they're still there, but this one was especially spooky because you would hit calculate and it would tell you the day and the hour and the minute of your predicted death based on, you know, averages. But that wasn't the worst part. The worst part is it would start a countdown timer right then, going backwards. Um, but the psalmist tells us, number your days so that you may have a heart of wisdom. We, we acquire wisdom by heeding godly counsel. 
No man is an island. No one is ever so smart that he has all the answers. Sometimes God will use, and I would say oftentimes God will use someone else to give you a bit of God's wisdom. But we must be open, we must be teachable, or we will miss the instruction and end on the pathway of fools. If we habitually reject messages we don't want to hear, we could very well be turning a deaf ear to God. And this comes into community. Anabaptists historically have interpreted scripture as a collective, as a group, and that it is not about your or my private interpretation. Consider your choice of friends. We acquire wisdom by associating with wise people. Friends have the power to influence us. Doug Larson wrote that wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you would have preferred to talk. Wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you would have preferred to talk. Consider this as well, the African proverb, that when an elder dies, it is as if a library has burned to the ground. When an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. Do you know the stories of your elders at Pequay? Have you written a book yet? Is anybody working on one? Maybe you have. I don't know. It's mostly a hypothetical situation. But go around and ask. And somebody <coughs> write these things down before they're gone. Finally, there's one last absolutely essential thing to do if you would get wisdom. And that is that you must come to Jesus. Jesus said to the people of his day, the queen of the south will arise at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What an understatement. Greater than Solomon indeed. Solomon spoke the wisdom of God, but Jesus is the wisdom of God. Others have spoken truth. Many great teachers have spoken truth. In other religions, in other faiths, there are leaders who speak, to some extent, true things. But Jesus is the truth. Others pointed the way to life. Jesus is the way and the life. He's both of them. Others gave promises, but all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus. Others offered God's forgiveness. Jesus bought it by his death. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So to know and to love and to follow this Jesus is to own the treasure of ultimate and eternal happiness. Therefore, the command to get wisdom means first and foremost, come to Jesus in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom. Paul admonishes the, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2 that their faith would not stand in the wisdom of men because there are other kinds of wisdom. There is a wisdom that is from below. There is a wisdom that seeks itself, that exalts itself. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Wisdom involves action. Wisdom involves doing things. I'll close by finishing the mailman's story. Being raised on the Protestant ethic, I said what you would expect me to say. Well, if you're going to be the mailman, be the best mailman you could possibly be. I'm a lousy mailman. Everyone gets done by 2.30 or 3. I don't get delivered until 5. What takes you so long? I inquired. I visit, he said. You can't imagine how many people on my route never got visited until I became the mailman. There are interesting people on my route who are interested in literature. There are hurting people who need the comfort that comes from the great poets. There are people who read and want to share what they've learned. I can't go to sleep at night. And when I asked him why, he said, it's hard to go to sleep after you've had 20 cups of coffee. 
I wasn't surprised when I found out the following year that the people of his mail route had gotten together and thrown a surprise birthday party for him at the local Legion Hall. He was special to them, and they were special to him. James continues, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you, let him show out of good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. My position is that this mailman had, was entering into the meekness of being wise. The wisdom that is from above is pure and peaceable. It is gentle. It is easy to be entreated. It is full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. We could spend a, quite a bit of time focusing on different kinds of wisdom. We know there's much around us that is called wisdom, which is a kind of wisdom, but is not of God. Yet we need not be afraid of being philosophers. Philosophy means love of wisdom. And Christians would be hard put to oppose a love of wisdom. But consider that the wisdom of the world is devoted to achieving and maintaining its own self-sufficiency and its ground for boasting. And we are not immune to this wisdom in our cultures. But no group of people has a corner on worldly wisdom. It is the mark of the poor and the rich. It's the mark of old and young and of every race. The second thing that's evident from understanding that there is a wisdom of the world is that it is not the use of the mind that is evil, but what the mind is used for. And so the alternative to a proud use of the mind should not be no use of the mind, but a humble one. And I'll speak more of this tonight, I hope, but I'll say it now in case I don't get there, that the mark of an educated person, if they are properly educated, will always be that they are becoming more humble. If education makes a person proud, that person is not properly being educated. So I quote from the artist, Vincent Van Gogh, and then I really will stop, Ben, I will. Vincent Van Gogh writes, let us go forward quietly, forever making for the light, and lifting up our hearts in the knowledge that we are as others are, and that others are as we are, and that it is right to love one another in the best possible way, believing all things, hoping for all things, and enduring for all things. And let us not be too troubled by our weaknesses, for even he who has none has one weakness, namely that he thinks he has none. And anyone who believes himself to be so perfect or wise would do well to become foolish all over again. What is the meta tool? It is wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. We'll be back tonight, and I want to talk about children and the formal education context, and particularly looking at what did Jesus mean when he said that if we want to participate in the kingdom of heaven, we must become like children. Look forward to seeing, hopefully, lots of you uh, back tonight. <coughs> For now, I invite you to kneel as we pray.